What's up, guys? Um, welcome back to By the Numbers. Um, my name is Andrew Johnson. It is April 16th, Friday, um, and there's lots of new news in the sports world this week. In terms of uh, Villanova, we we retained our two biggest contributors this season outside of uh, Jeremiah Robinson Earl in Colin Gillespie and Jermaine Samuels, um, which is absolutely huge for our program, um, as well as a bunch of other news in the NBA and NFL. Happy to be on. Super excited. Super excited about the Villanova news and happy to talk about that today. Yeah, big news week for Villanova. And I know the a lot of leagues are, are kind of winding down their seasons, but off seasons are a really great time, especially for the with the NFL draft and NBA draft coming up soon. So definitely I'll talk about excited. For sure. So I guess we can kick off from there. So the big news of the week, obviously, uh, for Villanova, like I said, was the return of Colin and Jermaine. Um, this is absolutely massive for our school at large. I mean, you know, we were robbed of like an in-person um, college basketball season this year. So hopefully next year when people are all vaccinated, we will be able to watch basketball here at Villanova um, at its peak um, to get fifth years out of Colin and Jermaine with the experience they have in the big East um, is just monumental for our program's outlook. I mean, we're retaining the, the biggest player of the year, Colin Gillespie, which is, I mean, by itself is insane, but to have that front court depth with Jermaine returning gives a lot more flexibility for our uh, young guys, in, including Nana Njoku, to kind of be eased into that role in the front court. I guess more specifically, CBS Sports came out um, with their preseason top five um, for next year, and we, sh- we jumped nine spots to, to number three, so we were – 12 uh, before the news about Colin and Jermaine, but now we're three right behind uh, Gonzaga and UCLA. Um, so, yeah, I cannot wait for us to be a legit championship contender next season because I truly think that we are. Totally agree. Totally agree. And especially, you know, going into our junior year in college, I just got to say that that's that's so cool to be, you know, hopefully contenders, um, assuming everything, you know, fits right, which – I can't see how it wouldn't. I mean, these guys are are two of our best players besides Jeremiah Robinson Earl. But, you know, we, we I was thinking about this, like I, I really didn't expect this to happen, but I'm picturing, you know, Colin and uh, Jermaine are, are close friends. You know, whenever I see them on campus, they're always together. And so I can picture them just being like, you know what, let's go get a chip, you know, let's get it done. And because uh, they had other options, they could have, they could have gone with, but you know, what's better than putting on the Villanova uniform. And so I'm super excited to, you know, be watching these guys, you know, uh, our junior year, you know, I, I think, I think especially when we have the, the third best recruiting class coming in and they get to, you know, practice behind these guys, they might be a little frustrated that they might not get as much time as they would otherwise have, but, you know, what better people to learn the Villanova system um, than Colin Gillespie and Jermaine Samuels? You know, it, it it's awesome. I, I can't wait for next season. Yeah, definitely a couple of interesting things here. I, I agree. It's good to have both of them back. I mean, it does initially, immediately launch us back into the championship conversation. I don't know what that'll look like. We'll have to see kind of how Colin comes back from that injury. He's still, you know, ACL is nothing to, kind of, you know, swipe away. So it's certainly something to consider, uh, you know, Kevin talking right now, having the, those recruits able to kind of just develop a little bit. I mean, you look at Colin, Colin's freshman year, you know, the, we won a national championship and you look where he is now, Big East player of the year last year. And I odds on favor this year has to be. Uh, so really excited. I, I definitely kind of just hearing the news, looking into some of the numbers behind kind of what the team may look like next year, at least from a lineup perspective. Um, and, and just I'm thinking that may the one two of the main lineups that Jay Wright will go with next year will be so Colin Gillespie, Justin Moore, Caleb Daniels, uh, Jermaine Samuels. And then I was thinking either one of Eric Dixon or Brandon Slater. Uh, I, I'd probably lean Brandon Slater. I don't know. Eric Dixon kind of came on a little bit towards the end of the season. Uh, but looking at kind of that five man lineup with Eric Dixon, it was it didn't neither of these lineups had a ton of like had a ton of experience on not many possessions for with Eric Dixon on the floor, only 26 possessions, but 
the offensive rating was incredible, 130.8, but the defensive rating was terrible. So kind of a high-powered offensive lineup maybe. Uh, and then looking at Brandon Slater lineup, uh, kind of what you'd expect with Brandon Slater kind of slotting at the fifth role is much more defensive. So 100 points per session uh, on defense and then only 94.4 points per 100 sessions on offense was a little bit worrying, but it, it'll be interesting to see kind of what Wright ends up deciding there and kind of seeing how players who came on towards the end of the season, like Chris Archdiakono and Eric Dixon can slot into the lineup now with Colin and Jermaine back along with recruits coming in as well. Uh, so I'm excited to see what the team looks like next year and really happy to have two impact players back in the lineup. So off that as well, um, I think a big, you know, hallmark of our program, like is our depth. Um, we always have outstanding depth in that, you know, the third guy down in the, like in the lineup of any one position is always going to, to be able to contribute like in a positive way. You know, we kind of forget when we're talking about our uh, recruiting class, the presence of uh, Jordan Longino. He was the number 50 overall player um, in the uh, 2021 uh, 24-7, um, I guess, rankings for this next class. So, you know, he's a extremely highly touted player that maybe didn't get enough recognition with um, Trey Patterson coming early and being ranked higher. But, you know, to have him right behind Justin Moore in the lineup is almost, you know, unfair. Because now, um, you know, with Colin and Jermaine claiming um, spots in the starting five, um, we have a lot more flexibility throughout the season to, like, mix and match lineups with players who are high-level D1 talents that can contribute right away. Um, I also think having Trey Patterson on board for that postseason run is going to help him with his confidence. He's already kind of been exposed to what it takes to be a D1 player. Um, actually even got some minutes um, in like garbage time. But we're also kind of forgetting about Brian Antoine. Like Brian, Brian Antoine is going to be a junior. Um, he wasn't as confident as we might have liked this season. But, you know, with the departure of Cole Swider, he's going to be a, see a lot more minutes at the three. Um, I can see him kind of coming closer to fulfilling that potential that he's always had. So I think we're – like I'm 10 to 12 players deep in our rotation right now. Like without even mentioning Colin and like Jermaine, we're already bringing back two of our top five store scores in uh, Justin Moore and Caleb Daniels already. So adding them into the equation, along with the presence of a Trey Patterson, a, a Jordan Longino, Angelo Brizzy, uh, Eric Dixon, Brandon Slater, Jordan, like Longino, I can just keep going on. We have so many players on our team um, that I think if you put them in any other team in the big East, they would be, you know, players that got rotation minutes. So I, I love the fact that our team is going to go into next year with a lot of different combinations and options to use. Um, I think also big in this conversation is the fact that Marcus uh, Zagorowski for Creighton declared for the NBA draft. So he'll be gone next season. That's the best player on Creighton's team. Um, and then Sandro Mamashvili, I'm not quite sure if he'll be back for uh, Seton Hall, but regardless, I think, we're now the absolute clear front runners in the big East to walk away with that big season, that regular season championship. Um, and like you said, Kevin, I, like, I feel like just their presence on the team again, like this season, even though, you know, there was a season, it didn't quite feel like, you know, what college basketball should be. So to have that core team back next season, um, when, when we're going to be able to kind of experience what, the culture of uh, Villanova basketball, how that impacts us as kids at Villanova. Um, I think that's going to be an awesome experience for everybody involved. So yeah. Awesome. Awesome news. Totally agree. And I think it's a great point to bring up Brian Antoine, you know, maybe I, I overlook him a, a little bit when I just get so excited about the other guards on the team, but you know, I think he, I just love his presence on defense too. He's so quick with his feet probably just like the opposite of what Cole Swider was. He just like always seemed to get, you know, beat on defense, but Brian's just, just so quick with it. And he's long too. And um, you know, you, you know that he has that talent as a five-star recruit. And so I think him being an upperclassman, and he always seems to have the right attitude, you know, um, Jay always, you know, preaches about attitude and he seems to, to buy into the Villanova system, even when he didn't get as many minutes as I thought he should have last year. And so him hopefully maybe getting a starting role next year, you know, him and Trey Patterson switching off for that Cole Swider position too. And I, I just, I think we're going to be 
I'm trying not to get too excited, but I, I'm really, you know, I have high hopes for next season. Oh yeah, right. I'd add as well. Oh, sorry. I'm just, just going to add as well. Last season we had the we had the ninth best offensive rating in the entire NCAA. So that's out of 347 teams. And I think you know, Cole Swider contributed to that. Obviously, obviously Jeremiah did as well. But like we're going to grow on that number next year. And I think that our our strength as a program, we've always been a good, sound defensive team, and we haven't turned the ball over. Um, I mean, that was an outlier against uh, Baylor. But, you know, for the aggregate, we've been a good turnover, um, sound team. So the fact that we can, you know, probably grow um, offensively and, and we're already in the top 10 with returning with Colin, I think that just shows how much of a contender we really are. Yeah, it definitely will be a defensive adjustment, though, without Jeremiah back. Uh, looking kind of just on-off stats with Jeremiah on the court versus off, the defense was 10 points per 100 possessions better with him on the floor. Um, and he he was you know clearly a presence. I mean, even the Baylor game, just to kind of look at on a micro level, just the last game of the season, he was in kind of everywhere on defense at the end. Uh, but I do think... I, you, you talk about having a lot of depth and, you know, Brian Antoine being an exciting option. I worry a little bit when talking about championship contention that you really need to drill in a six or seven man rotation that can really hang with anybody. So I think somebody, I don't know who it is, whether it's a freshman, whether it's Brian or somebody is going to need to step up and really be able to take a high usage position off the bench. Looking back on the 2018 team, there are six players who had over 15 minutes a game. Uh, and seventh seventh player at 14.4 minutes a game is Colin Gillespie, who's you know not too bad himself. So I think somebody is going to have to submit themselves as a six option or potentially kind of in the ilk of Dante DiVincenzo when you're thinking back to that team. Somebody who can provide that offensive kind of firepower from the bench and really make this team as deadly as it could possibly be. And there are a lot of options and we have a lot of depth there, but I think the, I, the team did perform well when it was kind of by committee, when everybody was chipping in without calling on the floor, but I think there's still kind of a ceiling there. So I think in order to raise that ceiling, you know, you're going to have to have one kind of th- this shorter rotation of players who can really, kind of hit those peaks when it comes to tournament time. And I know that's that's way down the line, but when I'm thinking about this team, and I, I know we're all hopeful that this team can go really deep, but I do think we're going to need to see at least kind of one player you got to step up and take on that role off the bench. Yeah, hopefully Caleb Daniels will play a little better than he did in the postseason this past year. I don't know if he's going to be that guy, but, you know, you talked about Brian, and that's a good point. You know, um, Dante DiVincenzo was, you know, we probably wouldn't have won that title in 2018, even with how stacked our starting five were if we didn't have that six man off the bench. And Jay loves that system. Um, so, yeah, that's a great point. Uh, yeah, that's a great point, Noah. Um, I think you know, that, that player is going to have to be Brandon Slater. I think that he is the most switchable player that we have on defense. He's, a, he's kind of a rim protector, not really. Um, but I think he's a guy that, that that you can throw at another team's best offensive weapon. And I think, you know, with the fact that our wing rotation in particular is going to be younger than usual, I think you'd, you'd want to save Josh Hart for, for the offensive end. Or not Josh Hart, sorry, uh, Justin Moore. Because I think, you know, having him take the other team's uh, best offensive threat on the wing will limit his offensive ability. So, it's going to be up to Caleb Daniels and uh, Brandon Slater, you know, as upperclassmen, as, as, as leaders to like take that role head on. Um, I think a good comparison for what Brandon Slater could kind of become is a lesser version of Herb Jones from Alabama. Um, they have similar body types, but I think, you know, what made Herb Jones so good was he was able to play off guys like Javon Quinterly and John Petty at Alabama, not take on a massive perimeter offensive load and kind of focus on being that jack of all trades defender. Um, Brandon Slater has a a lot of that same attribute and, you know, with the presence of Colin um, and uh, Jermaine on our team, along with the young guys that we have already, I think he'll be able to focus more on, on being that guy that we can kind of rely on, on being that perimeter stopper that we need um, in that same role that Jones played at Alabama. Um, So yeah, he's a guy I think that, 
has always had potential to be an impact player for us and hasn't had the consistent minutes to, you know, fully realize that. But this season, I think he'll, he'll for sure have that opportunity. And I think with the preparation he'll be able to do this summer, I am confident that he'll be able to pick up the slack. So yeah, it's great times to be a fan of uh, Villanova basketball. Yeah. I completely agree with the Brandon Slater point. He He's always been a guy that was really frustrating to watch, especially kind of last year and start of this year. He never got a ton of minutes. He never looked very confident, especially on the offensive side of the ball. He would frequently pass up open looks at the three-point line. It's the type of thing where he'd catch the ball and just not even look at the rim. And it's so frustrating when in a J. Wright offense, when one of the tenets of the offense is you're most open when you first catch the ball and he just passes that up. So it's a little frustrating. He can get a lot of minutes. I think a big thing for him is confidence. So if he can build that confidence, I know, especially during the tournament, I mean, he had some of those those highlight dunks and also kind of just getting more minutes for the end of the year and really seeing him perform better on the offensive side of the ball while also still being on the defensive side. I'm really hoping that some players can can spend this summer, this offseason, really developing their game. I think Chris Archidiakono could also be a potential player who could get more minutes in starting next season. And if he can, like, if he can start hitting threes at a, at a higher clip, I know he had a couple towards the end of the year, really small sample size, but if he can, he can become a, a, a it's a little ambitious to say upper 30% three point shooter given such a small sample size. But if we can get something like that of him and then Brandon Slater stepping into a role like that, uh, it, it'll be interesting to see how players from this past year develop uh, with, with this off season, given we're bringing back so, such high talent, but yeah, re- really excited for next year. I'm curious to think to to ask you guys. Um, given with how much depth we're gonna have, do you think it's possible that Jay just kind of readjusts his system? I'm not sure if I, I would want him to do that or not. But you know that six man system that you mentioned, Noah, which worked so well in 2018. Is it possible that we we move towards you know more adding more people into the rotation, getting more minutes, if that could be more beneficial or if we really need to feed off, you know, having single players play almost 40 minutes a night. Yeah. I think, you know, early season next year, it's going to be a lot more of a bigger rotation. Um, like, Cause I think, you know, before conference play, Jay Wright's going to have a lot more of an ability to kind of mix and match lineups. But I think, you know, like I obviously Jay Wright is one of the greatest coaches in the history of college basketball. Um, that's not a question, but I do think that, in terms of, you know, confidence building, I think he had, he, he, his way of, of building up player confidence is a bit, you know, unconventional. He has, he likes to pull players quickly after they make mistakes. I've noticed um, if Brian Antoine turns the ball over, if he misses a shot, I think that he comes out pretty quickly. That's a pretty general broad statement, but I think, you know, for players that aren't like relied upon guys like Colin and like Jermaine, that's been the case. So I think, when we're talking about confidence issues, I think a big reason why Brandon Slater and Brian Antoine don't look as like assertive and confident on the court as they could is because, you know, they get yanked early um, and they can't play through their mistakes. I think next year, that's going to be a lot easier to kind of implement. I think they'll have more of a leash, um, especially like in early season games against non-conference opponents. Um, so I'd expect us to have an eight to nine man rotation come Big East play. Um, but before that, like, like I could see any scholarship player um, like earning minutes because like we, we we said before, like Chris Archidiakono was not a slouch. Like he took like he took care of the ball, um, was put into a terrible like situation without Colin, you know, being there t- to help him with the with the ball handling load. And by and large, was a pretty good like force on, on the offensive end for us. So um, I'd expect us to be a bit more flexible with that, but. You know, once once the Wells Fargo games come around and uh, we get our like rotation finalized, I'd expect you know the same like we always have the same eight or nine guys to get the bulk of the minutes. Yeah, if that's all we got, uh, we can move on to the NBA draft. So post March Madness, obviously there's a lot of risers and fallers uh, depending on how each team performs, how each individual players perform. Um, so I guess I can just quick preface you uh, with, you know, just the overall NBA draft outlook right now. So there's every year there's different tiers. Uh, 
usually tier one, tier two, and tier three. Uh, tier one is top five, tier two is lottery, and then tier three is just first round talent in general. Um, you know, this year the first tier is pretty much uh, solid right now. Um, and it all starts with Kay Cunningham at the top. Um, besides, once Kate is kind of the consensus top player, top talent on the draft, I think whatever team gets the first pick will take him regardless of the roster outlook because of his franchise changing ability. But looking past him, the next uh, four players are a combination of Evan Mobley, Jalen Suggs, Jalen Green, and Jonathan Kaminga. Um, two of those players played in the G League this season, and obviously Jalen Suggs had an amazing March Madness season um, as well as Evan Mobley did. Um, and then kind of past that t- first tier, that's kind of when March Madness's performance kicks in. You have players like Davion Mitchell who went from a fringe first round player to probably a lock for the lottery. Uh, and then on the flip side, you have guys like Corey Kispert who prior to March Madness were kind of penciled in from the 10 to 15 range. Um, but in Kispert's case, he's probably now a 23 to 20, like nine range just, just because of how he struggled with, uh, with his shot, uh, throughout March. Um, I'm curious though, what you guys have to say about this. Cause I know that there were a bunch of players this year that influenced their stock a lot with their play. Um, I can kind of finish up if you guys want to just say who you thought, um, your biggest riser was your biggest faller, and then we can fill in the gaps from there. Yeah. My biggest riser would be. Davion Mitchell, I mean, the way that he plays defense, defensive play of the year this year. And, you know, he showed that he has that championship mentality. And um, I looked at a a mock draft on ESPN. They had him going 13th overall to the Warriors, which would be an absolute steal for them, I think. Um, And, you know, with Steph and Clay back next year, add Mitchell to that rotation and, you know, that championship mentality from all three of those players. I, I mean, I don't know how many minutes you would get on there, but, you know, I, I think we we forget – I forget about the Warriors a little bit and the fact that, you know, they, they have two of the best shooters of all time when Clay comes back. And if they could get Mitchell into that rotation, that could be a championship. Yeah, I'd probably go with kind of the Pac-12 players, some of the, some of the prospects there. I know Evan Mobley had a great tournament. He's – you know, he's locked in for three probably because Jalen Sucks had an even better tournament. I think Chris Duarte at Oregon also did did himself well in the tournament. He may be a guy that's kind of maybe not lottery, but but middle of the first round uh, can really hit threes, and that's going to be really valuable for NBA teams. All right, I guess one last guy I'll throw in there is Johnny Juzang. I mean, just the ability to kind of the shot-making ability that he showed um, during the tournament and throughout the season as well is something that I don't think a lot of NBA teams are going to be passing up. I'm looking at a board on the athletic and it has him, you know, that, that down at 60, maybe it's second round. I, I don't know. It's, it's hard. It's hard to know how much teams take into consideration March Madness performance, uh, especially this year with s- such a weird kind of environment around there, because you want to take into consideration the sample size and the entire season as a whole, but you also want to take consider performances when the pressure is elevated and when there is, kind of a higher level of competition, level of intensity in these games where it really matters more. So I think there's kind of something to be gained from looking at these tournament games in a different way, but also without fully kind of taking away from a greater season of understanding. So you take like a Corey Kispert or maybe even a Moses Moody at Arkansas, and you see what they've done throughout the entire season, despite kind of maybe poor tournament performances than kind of their their regular kind of what you'd expect from them during a, a regular season game. Yeah, I agree. My biggest faller was uh, Moses Moody. Um, I don't think he'll fall, he'll fall out of the lottery just, just because of, you know, how smooth he was during the regular season. But um, he really didn't do well throughout the tournament. Arkansas, um, as a team, um, did relatively well um, compared to expectations. But, you know, j- like just for example, against Oral Roberts, which is the – furthest thing from an NBA defense he'll ever get. He was four for 20 from the field and then two for 10 against Baylor. That, that, those poor offensive performances were also, um, you know, contributed by his poor passing uh, that he made, um, which kind of points to his lack of playmaking ability. He had seven turnovers to two assists in the tournament. Um, and that kind of leads to other stuff as well. Like his 
shot selection was a lot of like bad pull up jump, sh- bad pull up jump shots and trying to play hero ball just because he wanted to raise his draft stock. Like you said, Noah, the larger like sample size shows that he has the ability to like be a lottery player. Um, and, but I think his March madness performance is going to make teams think of him more as like a three and D player less so than like a Bradley Beal type. Cause I thought that name was being thrown around pre-March because of his ability to create his own shot from, from wherever on the court, um, but also playmake for his teammates. And when the lights shine brightest, he was not able to do that uh, for multiple games, not just one. So I could see him falling to a team like new Orleans maybe and number 12, uh, but for sure out of the top 10, I would say um, my biggest riser on the flip side was Trey Mann. Um, Trey Mann had a great season this year and, and wasn't really talked about as, as much as he should. Um, this season, he raised his uh, three-point percentage from 27.5% to a 40.2, which is absolutely monumental for his draft stock. You cannot be a point guard in the NBA and not be able to shoot the three, which now he's shown that that, that he can. He did that on, on uh, more attempts this season than he did last season while also having more of a role offensively with the transfer of Andrew Nemhard. So, you know, I love the fact that he was handed the keys at Florida and improved himself. Um, a lot of times guys like him who are highly rated high school recruits have down seasons their first season in college and either transfer to a school um, that they think they could do better at or just declare for the draft. I love the fact that he stayed and, and uh, worked on his game. And obviously it uh, paid off for him. Um, down the stretch of the SEC tournament, um, th- the, the, the last six games of that tournament, he averaged 21.2 points um, and also had a 30-point explosion um, in the championship game of, 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 of the SEC tournament. He also had a great run in March Madness where he hit multiple clutch shots at the buzzer. Um, he tied the game against Oral Roberts with a deep three and won the game with an ice three against Virginia Tech. He's a guy that I don't think is being talked about enough as a top 10 pick, but I think he'll go in the lottery. I, I think 10 to 15 is a pretty um, nice range for him. Uh, I could see a team like Sacramento taking him to be their third guard behind De'Aaron Fox and uh, Tyrese Halliburton. But his combination of being a great contributor in, a, in a March Madness along with his uh, regular season dominance, I think that's the perfect kind of formula for a, uh, you know, a guy that raises draft stock from probably last season to a fringe first-round pick to a probably – locked in uh, lottery pick so creds to him some of the players who i think may have not lost a lot out from the tournament but may have not been able to show as much are guys that had got eliminated in the first round despite maybe poor performances from their team or kind of it it may not have been all their fault but they did not have the ability to showcase their their talent on at higher levels in the tournament so teams in particular would be uconn uh, and tennessee so you got James Booknight for UConn as well. At the start of the tournament, everybody, you know, UConn was kind of the darling of everybody's bracket. Everybody had them going really deep, uh, and they kind of ended up being eliminated in the first round, uh, which was a, a little bit frustrating, and not being able to see him perform against higher levels of competition. I was really looking forward to I think it was a UConn-Alabama game that could have been penciled in there. Uh, but then also looking at Tennessee, a really – struggled to end the season. They've got two guys projected for the lottery in Jaden Springer and Keon Johnson. So those are, those are two guards that have really have gotten mixed opinions, uh, 6'4", 6'5", each. And Tennessee's really struggled to finish out the season. They've also not been playing kind of at their best. And then being eliminated really early in, in the NCAA tournament doesn't help them as well. So looking at kind of the narrative of Tennessee's season, and considering their performances kind of wavered throughout the year, it's you also have to take into account the Rick Barnes and kind of playing them, not not really wanting to rely on freshmen as much uh, when understanding kind of their evaluations as prospects. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see where NBA teams fall on these guys who may have had struggling ends of the year or not been able to show as much in the tournament. Uh, but I that'll be kind of more more relevant as the NBA draft comes closer later in the summer. Uh, so I guess we'll just have to see there, but. Tennessee's prospects are, are two guys that I wish we would have seen more and would have been matched up with a really solid Oklahoma State team uh, that I think if Tennessee could have hit its ceiling as a team and really performed to the potential that I think it had, uh, could have been a great matchup and we could have seen these these two freshman guys really, really showcase their, their talent. So 
Those are two guys I think could have put more out on the floor, but didn't have the ability to in the turn. Oh uh, yeah. Also I would add as well. Um, you know, I think this draft in, in particular um, does not lack in like franchise changing talent. Last season, it was, it was kind of viewed the uh, 2020 NBA draft as kind of a down draft. The best players were kind of guys who you had to roll the dice on in a LaMelo ball and Anthony Edwards this year though. Um, I think, you know, even though Evan Mobley isn't of um, Kate Cunningham's caliber, just because the NBA is a guard driven league uh, Mobley is a legitimate um, kind of like crown jewel of any NBA draft class. He is the ultimate kind of new age big man and that he can stretch the floor and guard point guards at, I think he's like seven foot one, which is just absolutely absurd. Um, he's incredibly versatile. Um, he averaged 13.5 points and a 9.3 rebounds um, and had eight blocks in the tournament, um, which, he, which, you know, was a force defensively. I think for me, he kind of reminds me of a more mobile uh, Rudy Gobert. Um, he's going to be a guy that teams build around defensively. Um, but in the case of Mobley, he's so athletic that he can maybe even handle in the pick and roll. So, I mean, his tournament performance showed that he's absolutely oozing with untapped potential. Um, and then on, on the flip side as well, you have guys like Cameron Thomas from like LSU. He's not going to do much besides shoot, but he can absolutely pour it in. He had 27 points against uh, St. Bonaventure and then had 30 against Michigan. So he can do it with the best of them. Um, he'll never be more than just like an off the bench spark plug, but he can do that very well. He's kind of like a Nick young kind of player where he's not going to add much to defensively or passing wise, but every team needs shooting and he can for sure do that. Um, Herb Jones, obviously I think he did, he kind of fell like a bit cause he didn't have a great tournament. He was the SEC player of the year. Um, he only had 14 points against uh, UCLA and a, uh, Maryland combined. He missed all of his six. Th- he missed six of his uh, three-point attempts and hasn't hit a three um, since February twentieth, which was before March Madness. Um, also, I think before the draft, this would have never been mentioned, but the power of of March Madness, I think, is most important for non-blue blood schools. Um, before March Madness, had Oral Roberts not made it, Max Aismith would never be in the like the discussion for the NBA draft, even though he led. Um, the entire college basketball scene in scoring. Um, but now after his performance in March Madness, I think he could be seen as a back end of a, like a second round pick, maybe like an Isaiah Thomas type, um, because he could be that change of pace point guard um, that can score. For example, he had 29 points against Ohio state. And then against Florida, the, the next week he had 26 and seven rebounds. Um, the next weekend against Arkansas, he had 25 points. Um, he was the first player in uh, March Madness to score 25 plus points in each of the first three rounds of the tournaments in Steph Curry. He's, he's barely six feet tall, but you know, that obviously um, that height is going to impact him and his projection, but he can do, but he showed up against the best teams and it was more impressive that he did so as, you know, pretty much the sole option on that team. Teams were keying in on him defensively and they still couldn't stop him. So I think that, He's the player that I think, you know, March Madness is, is, is really built for that guy that didn't get exposure during the regular season. But, you know, does if A. Smith does declare for the NBA draft, um, I would for sure see him being drafted back end of the uh, second round. And if not, you know, worst case uh, scenario, a uh, primary undrafted free agent. So, yeah, that, that's kind of my outlook on the draft. Um, there's more players, obviously I would look up NBA drafts online. There's lots of mock drafts available, but you know, great, great class this season and guys that are going to be franchise changing talents in the NBA for, uh, the foreseeable future. Yeah, for sure. And kind of just touching on a couple of things that you mentioned, a lot of good stuff. And for sure, when you're looking at a guy like Evan Mobley and even Jalen Suggs at two and three, I think either of those guys would have gone number one overall in last year's draft. And so you're telling me I'm the team that picks third overall and I get a number one overall pick caliber player and Evan Mobley, I'm uh, super pumped. So I think the high end talent here is really great. And then you kind of mentioned a lot of other guys looking at Aceness as well. I mean, 43.3% from three on 8.3 attempts per game is absolutely absurd for a guy who's pretty much being locked in on as the only guy on that oral Roberts team that you're going to have to guard. So, I mean, that, 
the Oral Roberts runs a really pro style NBA uh, pro style offense as well with kind of like five out really high pick and roll uh, with Kevin O'Banner, which is really lethal. I mean, if you watch them play in the tournament, they shredded teams. Uh, so I think, you know, there could be some level of translatability there as well, given he's kind of more familiar with that. I, he would, he would be picked up on an E10 or kind of some sort of G league contract immediately. If he doesn't get drafted, I'm sure just given that shooting, because you really just can't pass up on that. But then, yeah, I think the the high end talent really, really makes this draft exciting. And I'm, It'll be interesting to see the lottery as well, to see kind of which teams end up picking where, what trades go down, and see maybe a contender wants to take one of these guys. So I think there's maybe some some impact players who can who can really you know come into the league and and make an impact on a big team really early on. So uh, definitely agree. Much more exciting than last year's draft for sure, and uh, looking forward to. To seeing how this how this develops as the as the NBA season comes to an end. Yeah, um, um, I'll just add real quick there. I'm super excited to see you know how these these superstar talents match up with the teams that they get picked to. You know, I'm looking at you know like a a Corey Kispert at uh, New Orleans potentially over um, the number eleven pick, and you know having two young guys with Zion and and Kispert would be you know, potentially franchise changing. And, um, you know, you look at that with, with the Celtics too, you got Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum, you know, two young players who can, you know, really change the whole franchise. So it, it'd be great to, to see him in new Orleans, you know, that young talent. And I'm excited to see where everyone else falls too. Uh, yeah, for sure. I think, you know, Jalen Suggs, like you said, Noah, um, would have for sure been the top pick last season. I think what makes him so different is he doesn't really have a weakness in his game. He's not a guy like a uh, Jalen Green that's going to be the most exp- explosive athlete in, in uh, the arena, but he does everything well um, and is the ultimate leader. I think, you know, he, he raises his team ceiling just by the attitude that he instills in every one of his teammates. Um, I kind of see him more as like a toned down Russell Westbrook um, in that they're both not like elite shooters, but they have, like this amazing first step quickness that can't really be taught. Um, they're both, you know, never phased by the moment, play their games um, and can uh, fill it up offensively and defensively. Um, a fit I like for him is actually the Timberwolves. <laughs> uh, he's a Minnesota kid, obviously that means something, but we as a franchise, um, as a fan, I'm a big Timberwolves fan. We were bought out by Alex Rodriguez, which sucks. Our owner is, um, a waste of space. He's an awful owner. He's probably behind James Dolan, the worst owner in the NBA. Um, so just for a quick background here, um, Kevin Garnett um, are the greatest player in Timberwolves franchise history um, was interested in uh, buying the team. Glenn Taylor, our owner has been public in his wish to sell the team and uh, KG and some other um, partners um sent him an offer for the franchise. Um, you know, had he purchased the team, it would have reinvigorated the franchise with a life of, you know, trying to compete and the entire city at large. But Glenn Taylor has always held it against Kevin for leaving for Boston in his career. And um, even though, you know, KG has said over and over that it was never about Minnesota, it was just time for him to win, which, you know, is actually up to Glenn Taylor for not building a, a winning roster around him, but that's beside the point. Um, after selling the team to Alex Rodriguez, he has nothing to do with Minnesota. He doesn't care about Minnesota. He cares about the business opportunity. And I wouldn't be surprised if the franchise is moved to a place like Seattle or Nashville or, or some other city, because he only wants to make a profit off of our franchise. Drafting Jalen Suggs as the hometown kid, um, as a guy that is known to be a culture changer, I think would go, you know, so far for our franchise to kind of lock in our, um, the, the media presence of trying to stay in Minnesota. Uh, I think he would slot in perfectly next to uh, D'Angelo Russell in the backcourt as a more of a defensive minded player. He'd set the tone for us defensively and would make a dynamite fast break combination with Anthony Edwards. Um, in terms of Cade Cunningham, 
I don't think there's a bad fit for him because wherever he'll go, he will be the uh, featured option. But I think especially the Houston Rockets would be awesome for him. Um, they're a team right now without much of a, of a direction after trading James Harden. They're in straight-up asset accumulation mode. Um, they do have a good, intriguing young big man in uh, Christian Wood, but I think Kate Cunningham could, could be a great um, Luka Doncic-type player in Houston where he takes over the keys immediately and is able to kind of lead that team um, from the jump. Um, I think he's not going to have much of a too tough of a transition this season because his top question mark coming into this college season was his ability to shoot the three, but he shot 40% this season. So that's been answered. Um, and I think when he's surrounded by NBA shooters, his assist percentage will, will only go up from what it was this, this season at Oklahoma state. Um, and then finally for Evan Mobley, again, I think there's a lot of good fits for him, but I think Oklahoma city would be great as well. Um, you know, they have, uh, I think like 17 first round picks in the next like nine drafts, which is just, you know, absurd. They won't keep all of those, but you know, if they're able to score a top a spot on the top three this season, I think he would be a great, uh, building block next to a Shea, Shea Gilgis Alexander down in, down in Oklahoma. So lots of excitement around that. Um, and yeah, could not be more excited. That being said, um, we're going to do more of this next week, but I think it's good to mention the fact that the NFL draft is uh, coming up April 29th. So around, you know, two weeks from now, um, around now is the time, uh, you know, when most of the news and uh, rumors kind of start to come up. Um, we already had some of that, obviously, with the trade um, with San Francisco moving up to number three, as well as, um, as Miami, Miami going to pick number six. Um, but I guess if you guys have any you know, perspective on that, um, we can talk a bit, a bit, a bit about, you know, risers and that um, and play in places and pick ranges you can see for uh, the draft's top prospects. So uh, what do you guys think? Yeah, I think the draft really starts with the number three overall pick. And I know, I know that's been said probably a lot of places, but I think, you know, no one really knows for sure what the 49ers are going to be doing at that number three pick whether that'll be Justin Fields or whether that'll be Mac Jones, it's really difficult to parse through the public information, the information from the media to determine kind of who goes there. But then after that, I think that decision leaves a whole, a lot to be kind of dis discerned because you've got a, a lot of QB needy teams in a draft that's really kind of full of quarterbacks. So uh, I'll be interested to see who they take there. If a team maybe trades up, I, that may end up coming down to draft night. Uh, but you look at a team like, you know, the Falcons even at four could take a quarterback. You get the Lions, the Panthers. I guess the Panthers are no longer looking for a quarterback. I, I forgot about the Sam Darnold trade. But it, it'll be interesting to see where the quarterbacks fall. And then I also think the Bengals have a pretty important decision at number five as well. Uh, but that those are those are my first impressions. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm praying that uh... – the 49ers don't take Justin Fields because I think he would be a steal at the number 10 spot for the Patriots, um, especially since we're going to have Cam Newton for one year and for him to, you know, learn behind a veteran, you know, MVP and Cam Newton and get that experience. And then hopefully if, if this all happened, if then he could, you know, take that starting role the following year, I think that would be perfect for our system. But um you know, that's assuming that the 49ers don't take him, which I think would be a mistake. Um, but I'm hoping. Uh, yeah, I'm all at as well. I think, you know, the draft starts at number three, like you guys said. Um, but I think the teams that, you know, hold the most cards in the top 10, obviously we can start with the Falcons. They are in a weird position because, you know, Matt Ryan, although he's like 35 years old, Tom Brady has showed that you can play much longer than that. So I think, he has at least two seasons left um, as a quarterback that can be, you know, at least an average quarterback in uh, the NFL, possibly not as 2016 MVP like performance, but at least an ab above average kind of guy. So I guess they have a bunch of opportunities with that pick. I could see them doing a thing where they trade back, you know, maybe with the team like the, like the Patriots, if a guy like Trey Lance is there, um, but I can also see them staying there and uh, taking Matt Ryan's Matt Ryan's uh, successor. If they do stay there, I think they'll take Kyle Pitts because I think Kyle Pitts is the best prospect in this draft, regardless of uh, position. 
he's a guy that, you know, the elite tight ends in uh, the NFL are like so far and a few in between that I think he, in his rookie season, will be in the category of like a George Kittle, Travis Kelsey already. Um, Cause it was like, he's basically just a receiver in a massive tight ends body. So I could see them going that direction. Um, besides that, the, the uh, Panthers kind of took themselves out of the uh, quarterback discussion this for this draft by trading for uh, Sam Darnold. So I can see Denver at nine making a move. Um, Drew Locke did not have a, a convincing second season. So I do think that they could also trade up to pick number four with Atlanta. It probably co- would cost them a uh, first round pick next season or um, their uh, second round pick this year. But if it means they can get the, they can get the, the uh, QB of their future that they want. I think that's worth that price. Um, the Patriots as well. I, I don't see, um, even though there's been all this like smoke around uh, San Francisco loving Mac Jones, like I don't see him being an upgrade over Jimmy G in the next three seasons at all. Um, so I have a hard time believing that. If, if Mac Jones does fall um, towards the back end of the top 10, I can see the Patriots moving up from about 14 to get him. Because at the very least, I think he can manage an offense that is filled with talent. The Patriots went out and got two of the top tight ends in uh, football and uh, Jonu Smith and Hunter Henry. They have receivers now um, and uh, Nelson Aguilar and Kendrick Bourne. So he might have a pretty similar role um, in, in that offense as he did at Alabama this past season. Um, I'd also you know, mention uh, the Cowboys at 10 being a kind of a – swing pick because they could obviously go Patrick Sertain at 10, the consensus top cornerback to help them on defense, but they could also take an offensive lineman to help replace uh, Travis Frederick and the uh, declining Tyron Smith. So lots of different options that could go um, in the top 10. um, But I think none more important than Cincinnati at five. I think that their pick there, I think will determine the rest of the next 10 picks because I think they're, their pick comes down to two players, really. Um, Kyle Pitts slash uh, Jamar Chase or uh, Panay Sewell. I'm grouping together uh, Chase and Pitts because I think they both serve the main purpose on that offense of just trying to give Joe Burrow as much help as he can. Um, but assuming that Pitts goes four to Atlanta, I could see them taking Jamar Chase just because they want to reunite um, Burrow and Chase from their LSU days. The right pick is is. Panay Sewell because I think it doesn't matter how many good receivers you have if you can't keep your quarterback upright. And uh, Panay Sewell has shown himself to be one of the most dominant left tackle prospects in recent memory. So if they were to pass on him, I think they would uh, regret it. But if they do pass on Sewell and uh, Jamar Chase goes five to Cincinnati, I think that influences what Miami will do at six. I think they traded down because they think Sewell will go five uh, to Cincinnati, which would leave them chase at six. But if not, then I could see a, a guy like Jalen Waddle or a De- Devontae Smith going six to Miami. Um, and then that would create a whole domino effect for the uh, rest of the, of the first round. So obviously the draft is pretty much determined by these endless kind of possibility outcomes that come just by being that, that speculative fan. But uh, regardless, it's going to be a, a great draft day. So could not be more excited. A couple notes on the, on the things you said. I, I agree that Kyle Pitts is kind of one of the, the freakiest players we've ever seen, I think, uh, to, to be completely honest. I mean, we're seeing these kind of pro day numbers come in and Kyle Pitts measured incredibly well. I mean, his wingspan is uh, six foot 11, which is something we've almost never seen, especially from a tight end. Uh, he ran a four four six a four four four, which is crazy for a tight end. Uh, you look at unmock draftable, they have kind of, comparisons for like the closest uh, in terms of physical physical stature I guess would be a best way of saying it and so number four you see Rob Gronkowski so I, it's obviously not comparable and I'm probably a better uh, comparison is Darren Waller with the Raiders but I mean y- you can't just don't think of him as a tight end I love He's a that comparison figure. that's an awesome comparison yeah I, th- I think that one's been, been thrown around a lot but he's he's a he's a game changer I mean I mean, yeah, for Florida, he was incredible. He he will be incredible for whoever ends up taking him. 
Uh, and then for the Bengals, I think I completely agree. You got to take offensive tackle there, I think, uh, because you can just get value at the wide receiver, wide receiver position much later on in the draft. Like there, there is history of wide receivers being taken in later rounds of the draft, turning out into usable players. So I think, it, but I think for offensive tackle, a position that's relies so much, so heavily on kind of athleticism and size and kind of these traits that teams can easily see, uh, that those guys are going to go early on. So you're going to have to take them early, or else you're going to miss out. So I think they need to go for tackle first, and then address the wide receiver needs later on in the draft or, you know, via other, other avenues, but I definitely agree. Tackle should be the pick there. And I think Penny will, will be their guy. Yeah. Um, I think just with the Bengals, I think a, a new, um, you know, thing they could do, I think. So if they take Penesula at five, I think a guy like Kadarius, Tony and uh, round two would be a good target. Um, there are guys like a Terrace Marshall. He's the other um, LSU receiver. Um, with Jamarche, uh, so if uh, they want to as, like have that LSU connection, um, they could always have that in a round two. But I think blue chip offensive linemen don't come around that often. And I think the drop-off um, from a guy like Panay Sewell to a guy like maybe like a, a uh, Dylan Radunes um, in like round two is just so massive that I think that you know would greatly endanger uh, Joe Burrow's career, like especially because he's coming off that ACL injury this year. So, yeah. So that's 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 the NFL draft. Uh, we'll be back next week with with more um, updates on that. But draft season is here, and uh, we're excited. So that being said, um, I guess we can talk a bit about the MLB. Um, yeah, there's been a lot of good action. I think this week, um, uh, lots of teams that have overperformed and teams that have underperformed. Oh, I can I guess so. I guess we can each mention a team that um has overperformed as well as the team that's underperformed, I can go first. Um, you know, the team that's underperformed has been the twins of, they're my hometown team. I was, was really, really hyped uh, this season to watch them play because overall they have a pretty complete roster. Their pitching staff has performed relatively well this season. I think uh, Michael Pineda has a sub one ERA um, and then combined with Jose Barrios and Kent Maeda, they have a good top of the rotation performance, but, their offense has been absolutely anemic outside of uh, Byron Buxton and Nelson Cruz. Josh Donaldson has been plagued by injuries this season, obviously like he was last season, which sucks to see considering we handed him a $90 million contract. Um, in terms of our bullpen, our uh, biggest addition this offseason was Alex Colomay, the old White Sox closer, um, which, you know, to put it lightly, has not gone to plan. He has blown two of his four saves um, and has been tagged for four earned runs over his first five and a third innings. So um, he actually ranks dead last in the entire MLB for uh, relievers in a wins probability added at minus 0.9. So we'll have to figure out the back of our bullpen for us to do anything this season. And I have confidence that we will be able to um, in terms of a team that has done well this season. Um, I'll point to uh, these, San Diego Padres, you know, they, they were dealt a pretty terrible blow at the uh, first part of the season when the face of their franchise, uh, Fernando Tatis Jr. had a bad shoulder injury. Um, they're calling it a shoulder subluxation, um, which I'm not quite sure what that is, but it's pretty serious considering he injured that same shoulder this spring training. Um, but in his place, they've done a great job with having their younger players uh, step up. Um, Jake Cronenworth in particular has been awesome. Um, he has filled in uh, for Tatis while he's been on the IL in terms of their infield defense has been pretty much the same as it was. Um, and then moving down the order, um, you know, they have guys like an Eric Hosmer and a Will Myers. Um, if you combine their performances this season at the plate, they combine for a, a 341 average and a, a 634 OPS and a, 96 plate appearances, which obviously is amazing. They lead the MLB in ERA despite not having um, Denilson Lamett um, available to them this season, which is one of their best pitchers. So I could for sure see them challenging uh, the Dodgers this season uh, for a playoff spot. Um, and at the very least, uh, should be a, a World Series contender. So it's only a, a few weeks into the season, but lots of good news so far. 
Yeah, I totally agree with what you're saying um, about the Padres there. I, I like their, you know, the, their ability to overcome injuries and, you know, their bullpen still looks all right. So we'll see how that goes. Um, I also had the Twins as underperforming, but I'm not worried about them. You know, I, I think their, their offseason signing of Alex Colomb has, has yet to pay off. And I think it will later on. It's, it's still very early, um, despite their their one and three start. I think they had, but that, that's all right. I've seen that overperformed. I gotta do my hometown Red Sox. They're um, they're they started off with a um, with a sweep, or they got swept to start. But uh, since then, they're nine and four, and um, they're they just they've been looking on fire. And I think baseball is just such a streaky, uh, the MLB is just a streaky league where, you know, you never know how these teams are going to do, but, um, I'm, I'm liking the way that they they look and if they can get pitchers like Garrett Richards, who had a tough start, but I, I have faith that they'll be, that he'll be able to rally around the rest of the team's success with JD Martinez and everyone just kind of rallying together. And that's, that's the way that baseball goes. And I think, he'll end up having success and help the team out going forward. Yeah. I don't, I don't have a lot to contribute as I'm not a a big baseball guy myself, but just to throw in a random story that crossed my radar is I did see the Padres got their first ever uh, no hitter uh, last, last Friday uh, with Joe Musgrove, which I thought was interesting. Glad I could contribute there, but uh, it sounds, sounds like an interesting season. Good to see fans back in stadiums for for some of those games, uh, hopefully safely. Um, and, and should be interesting to see kind of how the, the standings shake out, I'm sure, for you guys. Um, uh, but, yeah, uh, that's that's all I contribute on that front. But Yeah, lots of, you know, this season it's hard to judge um, what a team will, will be like at the end of the season because there is 162 games and now we're only 12 games into this season. Um, but just good to uh, check in on how, you know, young players are playing, how teams um, look out of the gate because that is still relevant. So. Um, I look for a team like the Angels to be good. Um, Shohei Otani is one of the most talented players in the game, being the uh, two-way stud that he is. He's batting 364 with four home runs, um, and he also pitches in the Angels rotation, so he's awesome to watch. Um, I want to see Mike Trout get back in the playoffs. I think it's criminal that, that he only has one playoff appearance throughout his career, considering he's the best player in, in uh, the MLB and has been for the last, you know, six or so seasons. Um, so, you know, hopefully at the end we see them in the playoffs, but um, keep an eye on the angels as well. Uh, with that being said, I think we have a little champions league update. So Noah, want to take that over? Yeah, for sure. So we had the second leg of the quarterfinals for, for the four ties. Uh, and so some interesting results and, and some interesting matchups for sure going into the semifinals, but I'll, I'll quickly review uh, the four games that we had this past week. I'll start off with the most boring probably uh, in Chelsea versus Porto. Chelsea was 2-0 up and ended up securing uh, the 2-1 aggregate win despite losing 1-0 to Porto on the day. Uh, courtesy of an absolutely insane goal from, uh, sorry, Mehdi Taremi off the bench in the 90th minute, an overhead kick. Uh, I, I implore you to go check out the goal. Uh, if you're not definitely the highlight of the game, I can't imagine there being any other highlights. Uh, Porto is not a team built to attack other teams. They are not challenging in the Portuguese league in which they are, you know, much more financially sound than most of the other teams. Uh, so they did not stand much of a chance, especially with Thomas Tuchel uh, instilling a stronger tactical backbone to this team. I, I know it's not been a full season yet, so it's hard to attribute too much of that to him, but he really shut it down and Chelsea, you know, really just saw the tie out. Uh, one interesting stat is Christian Pulisic, uh, the American notably, was fouled 11 times in this game. So clearly Porto were narrowing in on him. I didn't get to, to catch his game, but uh, I'm glad I didn't, to be honest, from, from what I've read about it. But uh, it's good. To, it's interesting to see an American performing in European competition and being kind of the main focus of a, of a defense. Uh, but Chelsea uh, faces Real Madrid in the, in the next round. That'll be an interesting matchup. Moving on to the second game from Tuesday, uh, we've got PSG moving through against Bayern Munich. Another just absolutely incredible game. This is a game that I was watching on Tuesday. Uh, and the first game was incredibly open. Uh, Bayern Munich definitely had the better chances. But here, I would be hard-pressed to say that PSG had a better game. Uh, stats would suggest that both teams created roughly the same amount of uh, expected goals. 
So about the same. But uh, PSG played a, a stellar game. They lost 1-0 on the day, but went through 3-3 on aggregate. Uh, Neymar was absolutely, you know, he was a joy to watch throughout the entire game. Him receiving the ball, dribbling at guys. He was incredibly invested in the game, and you can really tell. And that's been a problem with him so at some points in the past is him being kind of emotionally invested and tied to the game. And it was good to see him. And when he's performing at his best, it's incredible to watch. It's breathtaking, to be completely honest. Uh, they also got a very good performances out of Adrissa Gay and Leandro Paredes in the midfield. And the defense did a great job preventing Bayern Munich from scoring with such a lethal attack. I think Bayern Munich are going to be disappointed that they didn't go through. But understandably, they were missing their star striker in Robert Lewandowski. Uh, Eric Maxim Chupa Moting scored a goal, but it's just not the same up top. He wasn't able to, to maneuver around uh, and really manipulate the defense in the same way that Lewandowski would be able to. Uh, Leroy Sané was good in progressing the ball, but just wasn't good enough when it got towards the box. Uh, and I, I think PSG should have scored in this game. Lucas Hernandez had a great game defensively, but PSG should have scored in this game, should have been probably put away a little bit earlier. Uh, definitely a fun game to watch, and I think PSG is going to be going to be dangerous in the next round against Manchester City. Moving on to the next game of the three, we get a 0-0 draw between Liverpool and Real Madrid. Real Madrid winning 3-1 in the first leg and securing passage into the semifinals here. Uh, really a disappointing game from a Liverpool point of view. Uh, the lineup was a little bit a little bit confusing for, for Liverpool fans, not starting Tiago in the midfield, a guy who you'd think you'd want on the field when you're down 3-1 uh, to be able to break those lines. Uh, fans also thought or maybe expected that Diogo Jota would be in the starting lineup to create this front four with Mohamed Salah, Roberto Firmino, and Sadio Mane, but he ended up coming off the bench. Uh, they only created 1.23 expected goals, which is solid but not enough, especially when you're down uh, 3-1 to a team like Real Madrid. Uh, and Real Madrid really just held steady. They're still missing their two center backs, uh, but were able to, to secure the 0-0 draw. Uh, didn't create too much, but didn't really have to. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how they adjust. And I think this is a really a credit to Zinedine Zidane uh, and his tactics throughout the season. The Real Madrid are still challenging for La Liga, uh, and they've made it to the semifinals of the Champions League, a competition that Zidane has owned throughout his entire career. So they're going to be dangerous going forward in the competition. Uh, a little bit disappointing from Liverpool, but should be interesting to see what Real Madrid can do in the next round. Uh, and finally, we have Manchester City versus Borussia Dortmund. Uh, initially, this was uh, looking like a game that could be really interesting as Borussia Dortmund sc scored very early on, courtesy 17-year-old Jude Bellingham, incredibly young. So there are some players in world soccer who are younger than we are, which is frightening, who scored. Uh, it, with a, a great goal early on, but then Manchester City ended up coming back with a penalty and then a goal uh, from Phil Foden towards the end. 2.53 expected goals from Manchester City to only 0.55 from Borussia Dortmund. You know, Man City dominated. They thoroughly won this game and they performed in a way that is expected of them, but may not be expected in a Champions League setting because they've had moments in the past where they, they don't perform uh, as they should or as you would expect them to in the Champions League. That's been a problem with Pep Guardiola in the past. Uh, and now they move on into the next round against PSG, a team that could cause them problems. A team very similar to Borussia Dortmund in the way they counterattacked and they have these threats. And so instead of Erling Holland, you've got Kylian Mbappe to face. So I'll be interested to see what Pep does, especially from a tactical point of view, see how he can uh, maneuver his defense, especially his midfield to counter uh, Neymar move, Neymar's movement around the midfield, especially in front of that defense, to see kind of what he decides to do there, what what lineups he, he employs uh, in, in those two legs. That, that'll be probably the tie that I'll be watching. But I think Chelsea versus Real Madrid will also be will also be interesting because Thomas Tuchel is, is such a tactical genius in, in itself. So uh, a definitely interesting second ties. Not, not a ton of upsets here, uh, but for sure, for sure. Interesting. And I'm really looking forward to the semifinals coming up later uh, in a couple of weeks. Awesome. Yeah, that sounds great. That concludes the uh, core part of our show this week. I guess we can finish up with lines of the week. Um, I can go first, I guess. My, my line of the week is actually today. Um, it is Rays uh, plus one and a half at Yankees. The Yankees are five and seven, have not been great this season. And I like their matchup. Michael Walker, I think, is better than uh, Nick Nelson. So I would ride Ray's money line today. Um, I'm actually going to do a teaser for my line of the week. So I'm not going to re release my pick yet because 
the title fight is next Saturday. And so stay tuned for the next episode where I will release my pick for the fight. Kamaru Usman versus Jorge Masvidal, the rematch. Kamaru Usman is the heavy favorite as he, you know, beat Masvidal handily last time. But Jorge Masvidal has the quickest knockout in UFC history. So it should be interesting. Really excited for that fight. Stay tuned. Liverpool, Liverpool are taking on Leeds in the Premier League on Monday. Uh, that was a really high-powered fixture when it when it started the season, and I think there's going to be a lot of goals in this game. I don't know if I favor Liverpool. Uh, Liverpool is in a, a tight top-four race right now, so they really need to win this game. But minus 152 for them to win outright at Leeds is something that I don't know that I trust entirely. I do trust there to be goals, though, for sure. Uh, so I'm going over three and a half goals in the game. That's going to be plus 130. I think that's almost a lot. Leeds are, are a team that attacks kind of fluidly with uh, with Marcelo Bielsa at the helm. So I think they're going to be able to get goals. I think Liverpool's defense is not very very solid, but they're going to have the attacking firepower to to launch counterattacks at Leeds. And I think it should be a fun game to watch uh, where there will be over three and a half goals. So that would be my pick for the week. Awesome. Uh, t- to just conclude the uh... – Show as well. I think I'll just quick mention. Um, today we were uh, we we came to realize uh, that we were mentioned in um, Feedspot. Feedspot.com's uh, top ten sports podcasts of uh, um, the year. Um, Feedspot is a website that that you can find um, on the internet. Um, their founder Anuj Agarwal reached out to us and uh, let us know of our inclusion on that list. Um, just want to thank them for their recognition. It's awesome that we were able to be recognized by anybody besides ourselves, because I know I can speak for us, um, that we do this for fun, um, first and foremost. So appreciate that for sure. I'm glad we can, you know, be of provide you guys some entertainment for the week. Um, and, uh, just uh, really grateful to have the ability to, um, you know, be a host on this podcast. So thanks again for that. Uh, yeah. I'll the same. Yeah. Happy to be here. Having fun. Yeah, for sure. Definitely surprising news. You know, glad to hear it. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Awesome, guys. Well, I appreciate um, you all tuning in this week. Um, it was fun. Next week, we'll be, be back in action with a more in-depth look at the NFL draft, um, along with other news um, in the sports world. So thanks a lot. Go Cats. Go Cats. Thanks, everyone.